Welcome to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact that they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. And today we're going to be talking about the new topic that's causing a lot of buzz right now, the vaccine. The vaccine. Specifically the COVID. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's called the the vaccine. (laughs) But with the COVID vaccine getting rolled out, I thought it would be cool to talk about the history of vaccines and the role of women in both their creation and delivery. Mm-hmm. And we're going to spend a little extra time talking about the COVID vaccine in particular and the women that made its existence possible. Ooh, fun. Yeah. And this is so, this is so silly. Sorry, this, what I'm about to say won't make sense, but it's just like a vibe. So when I think about the COVID vaccine and like the energy and the excitement around it, it reminded me of something that you did over break with your brother when you guys watched the Star Wars movies. Yeah. Like you had like a marathon. When we watched all 11. And, and I was just like, oh, there's one movie that comes to mind when I think about the energy of like COVID vaccine. Do you know which one I'm thinking of? Um, In like Star Wars movies? Yeah, yeah. Like the title. Yeah. Um... <laughs> It's not like Return of the Sith. No. Like, that's not it. <laughs> the Clone Wars? No, it's not. Is it, is it A New Hope? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's oh A New God. Hope. I just feel like this vaccine has brought on this new hope for me and for a lot of us. I remember we had a Zoom call about the vaccine distribution and when we were going to get it and how that was going to work. And it just made me so excited. And just, I feel a lot lighter Mm -hmm. knowing that there is like hope to look forward to. I definitely agree. And the recording of this episode is actually perfect because you just got vaccinated, right, Char? I did this past week. And I can agree with the the lighter feeling for sure. It was a very exciting moment. Yeah, I just got my second dose today, actually. We completely understand and recognize the immense privilege that we are afforded as medical students to Mm -hmm. be able to access this vaccine so soon. And I hope that when you, whoever is listening, when you have the opportunity to get the vaccine, you are able to get it and you decide to get vaccinated um, and just feel good about that decision. Mm -hmm. So Shar, can you tell me what is a vaccine? What do you know about like the general history of vaccines or maybe what you know about the COVID vaccine? Any or none of those is a good like question. That to topic, there's just so much. I mean, vaccines are usually deactivated viruses or like whatever it is being put in your body so that your body recognizes it for the next time it might encounter it so that you don't become sick. Do you know anything about the COVID vaccine? Um, I- is it an mRNA vaccine? Yeah. Um, that's kind of all I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. That's all you really have to know because that's basically all we know about it. Yeah. But I'm going to explain what that means and talk a little bit more about that. So I'm excited. Shall we get Dude. into it? Yes. Yes, for sure. Okay, cool. The first account of vaccinations I was able to find was actually not in the Western world at all. They were in China and India in the 1500s, where Mm. several accounts of smallpox inoculations are known. 
well, in a history book about smallpox called The Life and Death of Smallpox, the late 1600s emperor Kang Shi, okay. <laughs> sorry about that, had survived smallpox as a child and he wanted his children to be protected. So the doctors or whoever, the healers, ground up the smallpox scabs that you get when you get like the smallpox little pustules, they're called. And he blew them into his kids' nostrils. Oh my God. (laughs) Just imagine his kids were in high school and their friends were like, hey, you ever done coke before? (laughs) And he was like, no, but I've snorted smallpox before. Oh God. Both are super bad things, but he got inoculated. So inoculated was also thought to have been similar to what you were saying about chickenpox. Instead of snorting the smallpox, you could also rub or scratch the pustules and then put them on someone else's skin. That right. was the same thing. Super fun. Very exciting. <laughs> oh, so gross. And there were actually several smallpox epidemics that occurred across different countries over the teen to 1700s. So in countries like Spain, India, and North America, there were several epidemics that took place where, especially we know about North America, where the colonizers came and spread smallpox to all the native populations here to mm-hmm. wipe them out. Have you ever heard of smallpox blankets, actually? I have, yes. Where they, where they like purposely gave blankets to um, like Native Americans saying like, oh, here, we brought blankets for you, but they had smallpox all over them. So it just spread yeah. the disease. I know, I know. These gifts, I'll never accept a gift from anyone again. <laughs> no trust. That actually, the smallpox blankets actually happened a little bit later in history. We're still hanging out in the 16, 1700s, but it's still really disgusting and, right. and doesn't discount the fact that Europeans invaded North and South America and Central America, killing a lot of Native peoples on the way. But the reason I'm spending so much time on smallpox is because of how many people and how many lives it affected. Um, the mortality rate for smallpox was 20 to 30%. And it infected all people, but had a higher mortality actually in the rich rather than the poor. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think that's probably maybe why people were so pressed to find a cure for it. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, like for sure. (laughs) But in my history, I found some really interesting nuances in vaccine history that honestly like blew me away. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'll start by asking you though, Shar, do you happen to know? In what country the most well-known inoculation took place? Like the one that people talk about in history textbooks and stuff. Is it like France? No, no. Is it England? Yeah, it was England. And we know that the English kind of took over the narrative and wash out everything else. So there's really not any room for other stories. And so the most well-known inoculation that we talk about did occur in England. But there was evidence throughout history of smallpox inoculations occurring in ancient China and India, as I mentioned before, and also in Africa and the Middle East. 
Um, hmm. However, the most well-known of the smallpox inoculations was in England, where a physician named Edward Jenner noticed that a lot of his patients had scars from smallpox because when you get a pustule, you get like a little scar in that spot. Maybe, okay. I don't know, if maybe you've seen people with them, Char? I have not. Have you ever? Where, would, you not? where would I see someone with a smallpox scar? So I actually know people who have the smallpox scar because the usually the people that I know who have them grew up in countries in Asia or Africa. Like my parents have them. Mm. Yeah, it's like this little permanent circle. It's on their arm. I mean, yeah, it's a smallpox shot. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, though. Jenner noticed that all of his patients had these scars from the smallpox they had suffered through if they were alive, Mm -hmm. except for milkmaids. And what he realized was that they'd been infected with cowpox, which is the cow strain of smallpox. Okay. And that gave them some immunity against smallpox, like human smallpox. Ooh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. So he inoculated a young boy named James Phipps using a lesion, like a cowpox bump, from a milkmaid named Sarah Nelms. Okay. Also a fun fact, just fun fact, the word inoculation actually used to be variolation because the cowpox protected against variola or smallpox like that's another name for smallpox Mm -hmm. and the word vaccine comes from the word vaccinia which is cowpox but sarah nelms and the other women and girls were the source of this new vaccine that jenner was using on a bunch of people and we just never talk about them just never talk about them yeah okay that's fine but here's what surprised me the most edward jenner was born in 1749 and actually In 1718, a British woman named Lady Mary Wortley Montague had her son variolated. I know, I know. (laughs) But imagine if we were like alive in the 1700s, our names would be like Lady Charlotte Anne Rosa Antoinette Marie. (laughs) Sounds straight out of Bridgerton, like straight out of Bridgerton. (laughs) Anyway, Lady Mary, we'll just call her that. Her son. She, yeah, she wanted her son inoculated and she got it done in Constantinople, Turkey, or which is Turkey, um, modern day Turkey, mm-hmm. by a Charles, Dr. Charles Maitland. Her husband was the ambassador to Turkey and he was actually disfigured from smallpox in 1715. So she wanted to protect her son from becoming disfigured like her husband. And the procedure worked. So she brought the practice of variolation to England and had a daughter and then had her variolated. Oh. And then Lady Mary was out here like, yo, both my kids, they're protected against smallpox. This works. Let's try. Everyone should get inoculated. This is great. She tried spreading. So she tried spreading the word of inoculation around England, but she was met with a lot of resistance. And so to try to prove that the vaccine worked or the inoculation, Mm -hmm. um, they did experimental treatments on condemned prisoners. Oh God. Promising that if they survived, they would be released. But ultimately they did survive. So they did get released because inoculation works. 
still, that doesn't change the fact that they were using prisoners as experimental subjects, which so is they didn't ask. It sounds like they asked because they're like, oh, they are released. I but think they still, asked. was it like coercion? Right. That is coercion. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, though, she popularized this practice in England because obviously it was successful. It was working, convincing a bunch of people to get variolated. Still, she did receive some criticism because two to three percent of people who got inoculated with smallpox did die. And they that small percentage, if they didn't die, they could pass on the disease to other people, which is not good because basically you were giving them live smallpox, just a small amount of it. And right. so they could develop an immune response, but it was still a live virus. So it's not ones. as effective, right? It's not as effective as a killed virus, but at the time that was more than other anyone else had done. Still, I find it interesting that this woman literally popularized like early forms of vaccine. And yet we've only heard of this Edward Jenner dude, right? Yeah, like- random male doctor. Love that. Yeah. Also, I've been using variolation, inoculation, and vaccination all kind of interchangeably, but variolation and inoculation are basically like putting in a live virus from the source directly, just a smaller amount. And then a vaccination is using either like a killed virus or a different version of the virus. So, for example, Mm -hmm. cowpox versus smallpox. Yeah. Ultimately, they all confer some kind of immunity. And so I just think it's interesting that we don't talk about Lady Mary and we talk about Edward Jenner. Right. Like why? I don't know. Let's talk about it later. But let's move along for now. So another significant woman in vaccine history is Dr. Anna Wessels William, who isolated a strain of diphtheria in 1894 Mm. and used it to develop an antitoxin to the bacteria and later made a vaccine. I saw your face, Char. What what do you know about diphtheria? Isn't diphtheria the one where like your throat gets like coated (laughs) in like a really thick something? It just sounds like absolutely disgusting. Like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, that is what happens. So for those of you that don't know, (laughs) diphtheria is a bacteria that affects the mucus linings of your nose and throat. So what makes this fake membrane that makes it really hard to breathe and swallow. Ooh, it's so gross sounding. I know, I know, it's bad. (laughs) We get vaccinated for it now, though, as part of the Tdap or the tetanus diphtheria and pertussis vaccine. So it's basically been eradicated, but the development of this vaccine wouldn't have been possible without Dr. Anna Williams and her work. Yay, Anna. Yeah, in the same vein as Tdap, doctors Pearl Kendrick and Grace Elderling researched pertussis, also known as whooping cough, and tested their vaccine on themselves because they were on a limited budget. Wow, that is dedication if I've ever heard of one. I know, I know. And they ran a successful clinical trial and got the first vaccine against the whooping cough, which was introduced in America in the 1940s. Yeah. And speaking of the 40s, there was this really bad epidemic going on in the United States. Do you know which one it is, Char? 
In the 40s? It was polio. Polio was such a problem. And the fact that it affected mostly young children added another layer of desperation for a cure, which Mm. honestly feels very familiar in this desperation energy. Right. Or the big names that you think of when you think of the polio vaccine. I don't think of any big names, but I just like feel like there's something in my brain that's telling me that I've researched this before. And I can't remember the life of me. It's Jonas Salk. I've never heard of that person before. You've never heard of Jonas Salk? <laughs> no. Okay. What do you I'm mean? Learning. We listen to we listen to this podcast will kill you. I mean, and they talked about like Salk and Sabin. It's okay. So anyway, I there don't was know Jonas if I Salk. Listened to the polio episode. Oh, okay. Then I'll I'll go easy on you. I guess I'm just kind of. I guess I in my head think everyone knows about Salk because at our med school, we have like four houses. Each of the houses is named after a famous like doctor who did something significant. Yeah. I've never heard of that man before. Okay. Well, Salk and Sabin. Yeah. Now, you know, um, well, it's because also the vaccine was developed here at Michigan. So Mm. that was like a thing. Yeah. But Salk and Sabin were these two dudes And their vaccines are still in use today, but they have different mechanisms. And we can get into that another time. That's a very interesting topic. But these two guys had like this major competitive energy. They were going at it to try to figure out who was going to get this vaccine out first. Mm -hmm. And it was Salk ultimately. But Sabin's vaccine was better in the long run. It's the one that we prefer to use. Okay. Because it's the live virus vaccine. But Salks came out first and it was effective. But the thing about research, though, is that it doesn't occur in a vacuum. And there were many women on the teams that made these vaccines possible. But a lot of the records were so badly kept that the women couldn't be identified. Isn't it a thing? I, we definitely learned this when they like photographed lab staff, the women weren't in the picture, even if they worked there. So it's probably like hard to document Huh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that makes sense. I was hard to find in the research, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah. And these women were doing super important work and sometimes really dangerous work. Apparently this technique that they used to pipette when they were doing the polio virus research was called oral pipetting, where it's basically sucking on a glass straw Mm. to take up the liquids and then moving it. So you are one like little sip away from literally getting polio. Drinking polio. Like it's a smoothie. Drinking polio. (laughs) Like a little cocktail. Oh no, not. I know. And also Salk didn't really publicly acknowledge any of the women on his team. But he did get a lot of help from this doctor named Dr. Isabel Morgan who was a prominent virologist at the time who supported him in his work to develop a killed vaccine when when no one else did support him Mm. because she had been the first to successfully inoculate a killed virus vaccine into monkeys. So she had faith that it would work, but no one else really did. Mm -hmm. And so so she supported him. Uh, but she's one of the few that if you were to Google, you could probably find some information about her. Right. But why do I know the name Salk and Sabin and I don't know Isabel Morgan? Mm-hmm. Bernice Eddy was 
also a virologist and epidemiologist whose concerns about the vaccine were cast aside by all the men she approached about them. So she was working actually as a tester for vaccine safety. She was assessing vaccine safety for the general public. And she noticed the vaccine from Cutter Labs actively giving polio to the animals that they were testing the vaccine on. So there was um, this batch of polio vaccines that came out of Cutter Labs, which was in California, and they weren't fully inactivated. So they infected 41,000 kids with abortive polio, which is a less aggressive polio, but 51 of those kids developed paralytic polio, which is the one that can be fatal. Right. Also, those kids went around and infected other kids. So 113 kids developed the this super dangerous strain of polio. They weren't testing the vaccine correctly? They weren't listening. So Bernice Eddy, who was the one doing like, she was one of the people doing this testing. She went to both her boss and the director of the NIH and told them about her concerns with the fact that the virus wasn't passing efficacy standards. Mm-hmm. And neither of them listened to her. More than 41,000 kids got polio because of it. That's crazy. Like, that's actually crazy. I know. The last thing I'll say about the polio vaccine is that the funding for it from the government was pretty good. Like, it was a solid funding, but the funding from women was incredible because mothers across the nation took part in the annual Million Mothers March to raise millions of dollars to support the development of a polio vaccine. And the thing is, For generations, women have advocated for vaccine development, volunteered themselves and their children for clinical trials, and have acted as advocates for their introduction and implementation into our society. So without them, it's highly doubtful that vaccines would have had the public health impact that they've had. Well, yeah. I mean, Lady Mary really like hit the ground running, you know, spreading it around England, spreading the word. She was, the, she was the pioneer for women to be advocates for vaccines. And there's probably women before that that we just don't know about because they haven't been documented. Exactly. Okay, before I talk about the COVID vaccine and its development, I just want to give some shout outs to other noteworthy women in vaccine history. So Dr. Margaret Pittman did a ton of research on Haemophilus influenza, which is the bacterium strain that causes bacterial meningitis. Dr. Anne Zaruski showed that human papillomavirus was linked to cervical cancer. Dr. Rachel Schneerson created the first pneumonia and meningitis vaccine, which was also a conjugate vaccine, which is a type of vaccine that safe to use with young children, which was a big deal. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Ruth Bishop led a team of researchers who discovered rota virus, which is a major cause of severe diarrhea in children, even now. But at the time, it was a much bigger issue. And it, her research led to a successful vaccine against it. So women are just the coolest. They're, they're killing the coolest humans. I know, they're killing viruses and bacteria left and right. Yes, what we like to see. So where are we now? What's the deal with the COVID vaccine? What do women have to do with it? Just what the heck is going on? Tell me. Well, I will tell you. (laughs) Thank you. Charlotte, do you want to know? It doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you anyway. (laughs) I'm telling you anyway. 
Well, okay. So I guess we can start with how does the vaccine work? But like you said, it's an mRNA vaccine. So what is that? What does that mean? Well, if you imagine DNA as the book of instructions that your cells use to know what products it has to make, mRNA is the temporary copy of maybe a chapter of that book. And your cells can't access the original instructions. So they need to access that copy. And what the COVID vaccine does is it basically injects a bunch of those copies into your cells, telling them to make a COVID marker protein that your immune system can use to identify the real virus without ever giving you the real virus. And so your immune system can make antibodies against this decoy protein and bam, immunity, protection. Do I explain what um, antibodies are? Yeah. So antibodies are proteins that your body makes as markers for certain bacteria, viruses, fungi. Basically, anything that can infect you will have a marker tag called an antibody. And it's very specific for that thing that's infecting you. And when your body recognizes an antibody, it can take down that infection way faster than if you didn't have an antibody. Right. And therefore you have less time to get sick. And that's what that is. It's very cool. Immunology 101. Professor Alicia, back at it again. Oh God. But it's very cool tech, super exciting. And the core work behind this kind of vaccine type comes from this woman named Katalin Kariko a Hungarian-born immigrant to the United States who worked for BioNTech, which is the German startup that worked with Pfizer to create the vaccine. Right. And this startup was actually founded by a husband-wife team, Ugar Sahin and Oslem Turesi. And they were the ones who started BioNTech. Yeah, we love it when immigrant women and people in general, their voices can be uplifted because they do such good work. The Novavax vaccine is one that hasn't actually been put out yet. But apparently, the results are promising. And the team is identified as all women, apparently. Ooh. Yeah. And it's led by this woman named Neetha Patel, which is so funny because that name is one singular letter away from my mom's name. Because my mom's name is Anita Patel. <laughs> but her and her all-female team are developing a vaccine that hopefully is going to be coming out soon and will be used widely. Also, one of the Moderna trials that was run was led by Dr. Lisa Jackson, who works at the University of Washington. and. I just listed a few people, but that doesn't even begin to cover the female lab techs, grad students, doctors, researchers, et cetera, who've been working on this vaccine and its trials for months now. Not to mention all the nurses, physicians, healthcare workers who have been involved in vaccine distribution. These women are carrying the team right now. They deserve to be credited for it. So... When you get vaccinated and you post your little picture with your little vaccine card or you take your selfie getting your vaccine, also known as a vaccine, that's like a thing now. I saw it on the news the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, But when you're doing that, think about the long 
I urge you to think about the long line of women who've helped you get to that point. I've been thinking about this a lot since writing this episode. And also I've been thinking about how involved women have been in COVID vaccine development. And then also thinking about how much of an impact they could have had in other areas if their roles were made as important as they are. I feel like this is a good place to to transition. What do you think, Jar? All right. So, Jar, what, from everything we talked about, what was something that really stuck with you? What are you, like, if I have to remember one thing from what Alicia told me today. If I had to take away one thing from today's episode, I think I, I really like the point about like women as advocates for vaccines and just advocates, mm-hmm. I think in general, but specifically since we're talking about vaccines, you're saying like Lady Mary advocating for her son and just um, how like so many women went on, like um, how there was like mothers advocating. I thought was really cool that they were advocating for their children. Cause yeah. like, obviously they're going to be the ones who are seeing what's happening and like, we need to do something about this. Um, I think that like carries over to a lot of health situations, like women in communities who are the ones once again, being around the children and children are involved in a lot of parts of community. And you see just like a lot of what everyone's daily lives look like. I think as a mother, not that I am a mother and I have no experience in this area, but if I had to guess, um, yeah, I think they they just see a lot and it um, allows them, it gives them the ability to advocate for others, um, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I agree. I, the article I was reading that was talking about women in vaccines over history, they really hit that point home, which I appreciated a lot because there is an underplayed aspect to vaccine distribution because you can have these researchers make all these vaccines, but if no one takes the vaccine, then it's basically a moot point. There's right. no point in having it. So having women be advocates for their families and getting their kids vaccinated and getting vaccinated themselves and pushing other people to do so. Yeah, it's super inspiring. I was particularly struck by Bernice Eddy's story about Cutter Labs and how she literally went to her boss and her boss's boss and no one listened to her. Right. And then 41,000 kids got polio. Yeah. That's insane. It is insane. Cause it was as Um, simple as just like taking her word for it. It sounds like. Exactly. You know, exactly. Not like this woman was a virologist and epidemiologist. She knows what she's doing. Right. Like she has studied it. It's not like she's even if it was a random person and they're like, I kind of feel uncomfortable with that I'm seeing, I'd still be like, you know, I trust what you saw with your own eyeballs. I'm going to at least check it out, you know? Right, right. Like anyone could cross-reference. But when it comes to science and history, but when it comes to science and research, there's a lot of competition and racing towards getting results. How do you think women feed into or are left out of that narrative? And why do you think that is? So I have two, well, I guess it's one thought about it, but there's like multiple facets to the thought. So basically the way I see it is that women are always 
two steps behind. Just on the basis of them being women, you are always going to be two steps behind like the male in the same position as you. So as a woman, you're always kind of running, like you're running forward while males are walking forward to try to get to the same spot at the same time. So there's that part. Then women also take longer to be heard, which I think like points to the Bernice Eddy point. She was telling them exactly what needed to be done and what should have been done. And she just wasn't being heard. And maybe she had gone to them five more times. They would have listened. Who knows? But it just takes longer for people to listen to women. One, because maybe they're not listening or because they're being spoken over. They're not given the space to speak. Either way, women um, have a hard time being listened to. And that's just like another setback. So now you're three steps behind. And then on top of it, when it comes to vaccine research and or just any research in general, I think things happen fast. Like whether you're researching the new COVID vaccine and, you know, like the whole world's depending on you or just kind of anything in scientific research, you know, you're trying to find a cure for something, you're going to want to get it done to save lives sooner than later. If you're a woman who's already kind of behind, you're not going to be at the front of the line pushing information out because you're still working to get up there. So now the race is twice as fast and you have to run, you have to run four times as fast compared to, that's the way I see it with like women, how they fit into the narrative of like how fast vaccines happen is that they're there and they're doing the work, but they're not being seen because they're just busting their butts, like trying to get it done, just trying to do the work and not even being appreciated for it yet. I think that I agree with you. And I think something else I was thinking about is the competition aspect of it itself Mm -hmm. and how quickly things progress. But in this way that people are willing to sabotage other people in order to get to where they want to go. And not to say that women wouldn't do that. That's certainly, certainly not true. Mm -hmm. But I think that in male spaces, women are more likely to be cast aside and have their narrative completely left out and potentially be left to be more manipulated or sabotaged or left in this space where they are even more powerless than they were when they came in. Right. And that is, I think, one of the dirtier parts of research work and just science work. Mm -hmm. Because I know that science and research, and depending on what research you're doing too, that matters a lot because there's some research that's seen as acceptable for women to be doing and some research that's more male dominated and trying to, you know, cross over those barriers is also something to be considered. Yeah. Like you were saying, there's just a lot more pushing that has to be done to get to where they want to be. And I think they are at risk or more vulnerable for being cast aside or sabotaged. And I think if they're not, it's because they have to change something about themselves mm-hmm. to be more almost like tough, which is not the word I want to use. Right. But I, I like we've both done research. We know what that's like. And mm-hmm. we haven't done it in a way that there is, you know, a deadline like hard on our heads. Right. Um, in terms of the world, you know, watching you looking to us mm-hmm. to get results. but. Research is results-based. There is this push 
to have results, to be published, to push your career forward. And I think that men are inherently able to make strides in their career more smoothly, that research has more weight for women, but also it's difficult to access that the resources needed to do the kind of research that women might be wanting to do or being able to feel supported in whatever they want to do. Say the race into results for vaccines and how if you're in a male dominated space, it might be hard for you as a woman to um, step up in that moment, especially when you're being rushed. I think that's a lot because if you're a woman or there's a couple of women in a male, male dominated space that is not traditionally respecting women in positions of power or leadership, things like that. It, a lot of education goes into that of educating, you know, your coworkers, your boss or forming relationships mm. that will allow you as, as the woman to step up um, into that role or to, you know, gain the confidence of your coworkers, such forth, all of those things. And those things take time and time is not of what we have right now. <laughs> like, you know, right, that right. It, those are relationships that need a lot of fostering. And it's sad that it takes a while to get there for women, but it does. And if you're not given that time and it's not seen as something that's important in that moment, then I could easily see how women are left behind in times such as this, I guess. Yeah, well put. And then my last thing I was going to ask is just acknowledging that it's very much a privilege to have access to the COVID vaccine, but not everyone who does have access is choosing to get it or they just don't have access to it. And I didn't talk much about the history of this, but I was thinking about women of color and their roles both in research as investigators and as subjects of research, both willingly and coerced. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what considerations need to be made to ensure equitable access to this vaccine? and Does that impact our approach to vaccine distribution in communities of color? Which it should. That is not a question. It should impact that. But I'm interested in hearing more about your opinion and having a discussion about it. Yeah. Um, When you posed this question to me this morning, when you texted to me, like the first thing I thought of is, is when I was volunteering at vaccine distribution this week. So at medical school, I go to there's vaccine distribution in the city of Detroit and they're asking med students to help volunteer at it basically for the rest of the year um, as vaccines are continued to be distributed to communities. And the site I went to, I was just amazed at like, it was, I just thought it was really cool that we were there and it was a bus stop to vaccinate um, like bus drivers and people who operate um, the machinery for the buses and things like that. Just people who are frontline and essential workers that have been working throughout the whole pandemic, but you may not think about in your everyday lives. And so this vaccine distribution was going specifically to these people's workplace so that getting the vaccine would be accessible to them. It'd be easy for them. They were already at work. It wasn't taking away from their home life or an extra thing they had to do. They were at work. They could get the vaccine. They could go to like, go back to the job. Very quick and simple and easy. And I thought that was so genius because it was targeting a community that when I was speaking to the physician there that he was saying like this community has had a lot of illness because of COVID and they haven't been taken care of very well. And there's been a lot of people who have died 
as frontline workers, just working buses. Um, so it was really special to be able to go there and provide this vaccine to them. Um, and was what was even more interesting, I thought, is that there were med students specifically assigned the role as an advocate. So everyone was given a role. We got there and either people were giving vaccines or signing people in, like I was giving people their intake forms, things like that. But some people were literally their job was to advocate and walk around the bus station and talk to just people who worked there and talk to them about what they thought about COVID, what they knew about vaccines mm. and um, how, how they felt about the vaccine and just advocate for the vaccine and um, trying to get them to take it. And it worked a lot of the time. Like a lot of people who didn't really think they were going to get vaccinated decided to after learning more about it. Mm. So I guess this experience to me kind of like applies to this question really well, because when you're looking for equitable access to a vaccine, I think you have to think like really outside the box of who needs this vaccine, who are we forgetting, who's on those like outer margins that um, you may not think of right away, who's if people can't get to a vaccine distribution site because it's in the middle of a city or people who have barriers because of work or um, just things like that, I guess. So that was one thing I was thinking about for um, just equitable access. And then also for impact on communities of color, a lot of distrust as we've talked about in the podcast and is kind of right. well-known or maybe not of just distrust between um, communities of color and the healthcare system. And I think a lot of that to bridging that barrier is once again, advocating, but also just educating and building trust. And I think that comes through advocacy. Like if you're going out and advocating for something, you're going to a community because you care about the health of that community. And you're saying, I am bringing this health opportunity to you because I care about you and I believe that this is going to help you. Um, and I know that that has been taken badly in the past with communities of color and they have, um, people have been wronged by it. So I think it's just becomes like a longitudinal relationship of education, building trust and advocating and going in that circle, I think. Yeah. I hope that programs do that with COVID vaccine. I have no idea how it's being distributed like on a county to county basis. It's very different. I mean, my experience of how I got the vaccine and Alicia's experience, how she got the vaccine are just already different. And we're both in yeah. med school. Like it should, there shouldn't have been such um, a difference in how in our own access to the vaccine, but that's just how I imagine it, I guess. Yeah. I think it's, it's crucial to think about this concept of vaccine hesitancy and why people, especially communities of color would feel unsafe and hesitant to get this vaccine. It is fully logical. I completely mm -hmm. understand. I think a lot of people in general are hesitant about the vaccine as just like a base layer, but then communities right. of color who have experienced so much discrimination in the past when it comes to experimental healthcare measures, such as the vaccine, even though, you know, vaccine should get it, it's safe, but people do view it as like experimental and that makes people nervous. And I think there's just an added layer on top of that. Yeah, I agree. And the only thing I wanted to add was something I was thinking about in terms of my own interest in learning more about how we're, how county to county and how state to state we're approaching vaccine distribution is something that I think um, people are certainly working on. This is not a new thought that I've had, but utilizing community-based programs and working with communities of color and leaders within those communities mm -hmm. to build connections or use long-standing connections that have already been made to help with distribution. Yeah, um, for sure. And something I was thinking about just in my own experience 
because I can't speak for any other people's experiences, but I know that as an Indian American woman, something I was thinking about was if, granted, I don't know what the numbers look like in terms of Indian people getting this vaccine or hesitancy towards it, Mm -hmm. because there is some hesitancy, at least like within my own extended family and stuff about, oh, what is this vaccine? Like what's in it? Blah, blah, blah. Am I going to get sick from getting it? Just general things that people are anxious about. I was thinking someplace that would make a lot of sense to go to, to talk to people about this would be like salons where every Mm. brown girl knows you go to a salon to get your eyebrows threaded and to get your mustache threaded. Like that is just a fact of life as a woman of Southeast Asia. If that's something that you're taking part in is if that's like something that you do in your life. And I was like, that would be a great place because if there's so many people who go through there, right. And so many people who have to go. Right. Yeah. Um, It's a good spot to go because you know that your impact there will be great. That's a very unique idea. I like it. Well, great. If you liked that episode and you want to check us out, we are available on all podcasting apps. Every single um, So you should subscribe and send us a rating and a review. Apple Podcasts is the best place to do that. But you can also Insta DM us or email us. We love to hear from you. Yes. And while you're doing all of that, especially if you're over there already on Insta DMing us, you should just follow us on our social media. (laughs) We are From Scrubs to Scrubs on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also check out our website for more information on all of our shows and on Alicia and I. Check out our show notes, um, our sources, and our merch that we have now. We even added some t-shirts to the merch since the last Yes, They're so cute. I want one so bad. So check that out. Um, That's all at FromSkirtsScrubs.com. Yes. And as our podcast grows, like we've mentioned, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, shoot us an email, Insta DM, Facebook message, literally whatever. You could probably find my email on the internet if we're being fully honest. Mm -hmm. It's probably out there somewhere. Yes. Well, and with that, we just want to end this episode with how we always end our episode. Um, So here's to the women who have fought for us to be to where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. Love you all. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.